Hello and welcome to the Independent Research Forum podcast. The IRF represents the cream of independent research providers to institutional investors. I'm JP Smith and I'm here in conversation today with Anne Stevenson-Yang, CEO of J Capital, which she co-founded in 2010. Anne is a noted expert in uncovering hard-to-detect fraud and other malfeasance at publicly traded companies, particularly in China. She's a frequent and sought-after commentator on China and has written opinion pieces for the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, Bloomberg and other major publications. And indeed, that's why I first met her back in 2014 at an FT conference in London. Next year, the UK publisher Jericho Lane is coming out with a new edition of Anne's 2013 book. It was titled China Alone, The Emergence From and Pending Return to Isolation. The new edition is just the return to isolation. So that's clearly a theme that's developed over the past eight years or so. Anne's research is the fruit of 25 years of experience of living in China, much of which she spent kicking the tyres of Chinese companies, literally in some cases. Her analysis combines top-down and bottom-up insights, including both policy and in-depth corporate analysis. J Capital Research produced the China Primary Insight, which is a weekly about the Chinese economy that relies on primary research in China. So I'm going to start today by asking Anne to expand on her methodology and sources. To out- briefly outline J Capital's services for institutional investors, and then give a history of some of her more prominent investment calls and recommendations. And then we'll move on to the real meat of this podcast and discuss some current issues. Just to whet your appetite for this, I've been looking through her most recent presentation And the section on the economy is headed, the economy's down and it's not coming back. So I think that's probably going to form the core of this presentation. Anne, over to you. Thank you, JP, for that excessively generous uh, introduction. So in an effort not to uh, bore everybody to death, I will try to keep this short. And what what do we do? We do two things. One is provide uh, weekly macro uh, analysis and and research on China, and the other is to look at companies that we view as overvalued to do deep research on them and publish that research. The overvalued companies, which we published a, as a short activist, we find really by they're they're all over the world. They may be U.S. companies, they may be China companies. We prefer companies that are listed in the United States because these markets are liquid and more transparent than many markets and you don't have to deal with currency issues. But the way we find them is to look at outlying numbers. Maybe they have margins that are outliers for their sectors. Maybe they have too much cash, uh, and it's sort of implausible. Uh, for foreign companies that operate in China, if they keep you know, a big, big chunk of their cash in China, then that's suspicious because the Chinese renminbi is, is not convertible. And so you wonder why they would have done that. And then we look for a number of other indicators, whether there's a high proportion of related party transactions or a board that's not reliable in some way and has perhaps has been under indictment, that sort of thing. And then once we find these companies, then we do a deeper analysis. So, Anne, could you say a bit more about your sources? Because, uh, I mean, you've been traveling out to China. I think your first visit was in the was in the 1980s, right? And um, obviously you lived and worked there for a while. But now I gather you have some issues in getting back there. What are your sort of primary sources? Uh, obviously, you've got this sort of company data itself, but you presumably have a very extensive network of 
contacts out there as well that you can draw on. Yeah, JP. So I moved to China the first time in 1985. Uh, I met my husband there and we married. So that that kind of brought me back to China. So I, I lived there in total for 25 years. Since COVID, I haven't been able to, to go back and China has canceled my visa as they canceled pretty much all 10-year visas. Uh, so I really don't know whether I will be able to go back uh, in the future. At this point, one hopes that they wouldn't give me a visa and then detain me once I got in because they haven't shown a high tolerance for, uh, for people who, who are critical of, of the Chinese economic and political model. We do have a subsidiary in China and employees, but we prefer to, to use uh, contractors as much as possible because that lowers our political risk. And what do we do? You know, we look for, if we're looking for at, at a Chinese company or a company that has significant operations in China, then we talk to their competitors, we talk to formers, we look at the sector, we access data from, from the Chinese databases, and of course, the international databases like, like S&P. Um, we look at, at underlying financials when we can get them from the administration of industry and commerce and, and uh, you know, try to do a 360 degree view. And, and how do you um, interact by, by investors? I mean, you have regular industry publications, some of which I've been lucky enough to, to see. I think the most recent one was on the solar industry. And presumably you write sort of more ad hoc in-depth company reports as, as well. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So, so our macro commentary would be weekly and our in-depth company reports up to six times a year, more or less. Uh, it depends on what we find. I would say that we look into, you know, for every, say, 10 companies we look into, we'll really choose sort of two uh, to, to, to follow and, and do deep research on. And most of the, the other eight will be will discard because the thesis didn't really work out. Maybe the model is just not a great model. The industry is in decline, but it's not a corrupt company. We like, we like to look at company. We like to expose things that investors don't know about and that we can learn through primary research. We don't like to just look at numbers and say, well, this is a kind of deteriorating model. I think others are better at that. Yes. Yes. And presumably the other thing you can offer with your experience, and I, th I think this is often underrated and underestimated by investors in emerging markets, is, is context, right? I mean, you know, how, how we've got to where we are now, both on a sort of industry um, and on a sort of more macro uh, basis. Yeah, I think that's that's correct. And And the first cut when looking for companies is always to look at what's happening on, on a macro basis. For example, in, in solar, you know, China really dominates the solar industry, but we had a, a massive bust in about 2012 um, when, when international demand declined because of, uh, because of the bust in Spain and so forth, and Chinese capacity had risen tremendously. We're going to see a bust even bigger than that next year because Chinese capacity is growing so much. And that's something that investors don't really have their, their hand on. Good. Well, let's come back to that later because industrial capacity is something in China particularly that sort of interests me um, a great deal and how that relationship with the banks and local government is likely to play out over the sort of medium term. Perhaps we could begin by discussing the broader policy developments, though, and how the landscapes changed over recent years. 
I mean, could we summarize the period since China's accession into the, into the WTO as being characterized by a shift from a sort of hybrid of mercantilism and reform towards authoritarianism and autarky? And, and if so, does this shift predate uh, Xi Jinping? Because it strikes me, perhaps there's too much emphasis on Xi as a as a personality and, and, and not enough in the sort of continuity. But I don't know if you'd agree with that or not. No, I think that's that's exactly right on point. Um, the Xi Jinping is the natural outcome of a system that's focused on maintaining party power over maintaining the you know health and well-being of its people. Uh, it's interesting that you choose the WTO accession as your point of of, uh, of sort of pivot point. Um, that's interesting, and I haven't thought about it quite as much. My choices would be 1989 and 2008. So 1989 was the Tiananmen protests. And in reaction to the Tiananmen protests, the party really, really consolidated its power, both politically and, and financially and economically. And I think since that time, we've seen uh, a real shift toward the, the CapEx model and autarky. Yes. What what baffled me really was how long it took people to cotton on to that. I mean, we were um, discussing online the sort of book that Nick Lardy published in 2014, which was uh, Markets Over Mao. And that was really kind of, I think, the conventional wisdom at, at the time. Um, whereas, as you say, the uh, process towards away from reform in its broadest sense and towards authoritarianism had started much earlier. And, and 2008 seems as good a date as any, really. Yeah, I mean, because that was the year of the Olympics and also the year of the uh, the, the global financial crisis. And, uh, Lardy, we need not go there. Uh, Lar Nick Lardy wrote a very good book on on the Chinese banks about uh, twenty more than twenty years ago. Yes, I read it that. turned out that he was that he was wrong about timing, although he was right about the dynamics. And he's been sort of scrambling, I think, to make up for that since. Um, I think that actually investors are pretty. Pretty, pretty, pretty well understand the the Chinese model and its weakness. But the thing is that when you pour money into the economy, the markets rise, and so they've you know they, they've ridden that that wave, and they weren't wrong until they were wrong in the case of some investors we won't mention. Yes, yes. Well, you know, and and the role of Wall Street and the broader financial services industry in helping to enable that whole process of authoritarianism and uh, is, is perhaps something best saved for another day as well. But I think if we look at the index providers, for example, then there is a case to be answered. Um, so um, maybe, I mean, the sort of to topical, the topic du jour, of course, is um, zero COVID and, and this sort of reopening. And, and I wanted to ask you, um, do you think that this is driven solely by the fact that there is a large and, and quite elderly vulnerable population and obviously um, Chinese vaccines have proved to be pretty ineffective or is there an element of this paving the way for an even broader and deeper political and social control in response to increased external pressure from the US and also of course the deterioration in the economy which which the people in Beijing appear to be w well aware is likely to, to continue over over the coming years. Yeah, clearly zero COVID has given uh, the, the authorities a taste of power that they're not easily going to relinquish. Um, 
the I, I I would compare it, I think, to the uh, the one child policy and the family planning bureaucracy. So so China has now pivoted from limiting uh, fertility to encouraging families to have more children. And yet they can't seem to get rid of the family planning bureaucracy and its vast intrusiveness into the uh, the reproductive lives of couples and of, especially of women. Uh, you know, the, the the family planning bureaucracy still has the right to go into factories and check on the menstrual cycles of women. Yeah. Now, is this actually necessary or is it sort of uh, bureaucratic inertia coupled with a, a, a trend that I think that people internationally underestimate, which is the, the interest in controlling female fertility by the Chinese authorities. I think the same can be said of, of zero COVID. It has underlying uh, social and political uh, causes and needs that it responds to that don't really have anything to do with COVID. Wow. And, and, and quite as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, quite a lot of the pressure comes from a local level as well, where some local governments have actually been accused of actually exceeding their, uh, you know, the, the sort of COVID related repressions. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of places in China now where you have to get permission from your local um your, your local party committee that that manages a small village in order to get a train ticket or get a plane ticket or go out and buy things. It's just, you know, it's a reversion to the cultural revolution uh, style of, uh, of, of management of where people are. Or, and you can even say reversion to the Ming dynasty. Wow. Okay. And, um, and, and so do you have an opinion, therefore, about the reopening trade? Is it going to be rather more complex and less sort of less like pressing a a button or, or flicking a switch than perhaps most of us um, tend to imagine. Yeah, and they've said as much. I mean, one one negative indication is that at the last uh, party congress meeting, the people who got elevated were strong supporters of the zero COVID policy, and and they have made many statements since that say zero COVID forever. One one uh, one public official said, oh, we need zero COVID in place for five years. Also, China is reporting uh, a, a fast rising case count. Um, they have been known to under-report in the past and the fact that, they're that it's rising at all and that they're reporting it suggests that it's in order to support zero COVID. So I, I'm really not very positive about that. There are many things that they could do. I think that they will lighten up on the rhetoric around it, particularly when it comes to foreign investors, to Hong Kong and other uh, sort of windows into the, the Chinese economy. Uh, but, you know, renewed lockdown in Shanghai is not a good sign. No, no. OK, well, that's that's a much more nuanced view, I think, than we tend to get from the sort of fluctuations in, in the market, according to the uh, current news flow on that. Just moving on to the sort of underlying situation in the economy, I it's a terrible way of putting the question, but I'll, I'll do it anyway. Um, to what extent has the Chinese CapEx-led growth model run out of, of steam, do you think? I mean, this is something a lot of people, including myself, have been talking about for, for quite a while. And the, the dreaded I-core ratio, the incremental capital return on investment ratio, is that something now where the, the sort of chickens are, are coming home to roost, as it were, and we, we see a sort of very sustained slowdown? I mean, to be fair, growth anyway, I think, since about 2010, has been much lower cumulatively and in most calendar years than most commentators would have would have expected, including people like the IMF. 
Yeah, I think that that's true. And the IMF, we can put in the same basket with Goldman Sachs and with the UN Human Rights Commission as as organizations that are really um, sort of in that 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 have lost a portion of their independence to China. So we needn't really discuss yeah. that. Yeah. Um, as for the, the 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 capex model, you know, I think the real estate market is a very good um, sort of indicator. It's it's both the poster boy and the sort of engine of capex growth. And you know, everyone knew that it would end. No one knew exactly when it would end, and it turned out to be summer of 2020. You can discuss which catalyst was most important, whether it was Evergrande, whether it was uh, pre-sales kind of collapsing, uh, exactly what it was. But the thing is, it's collapsed. It's a good 20 to 30 percent of the economy, and there simply is no coming back. So. So that that model, you know, and, you know, China has has in many, many eras of of real estate decline, uh, the government has poured money into um, into infrastructure. The problem is that infrastructure has really grown to as much as it possibly can uh, and can't cover all of the private real estate market. At the same time, infrastructure is sort of 90% paid for by local governments and local governments are in distress. Yes, and that that brings me on to to what I suspect is quite an important point, namely the rather complex interlinkages within the Chinese economy between industry, the financial sector, local government and the property market. And what one thing I always tried to do when I managed money in emerging markets was look at the sort of situation in individual Chinese um, industrial sectors just to try and gauge the extent of overcapacity and, and the or, or, or not, but, but there usually was quite a lot of overcapacity and to try and gauge um, to what extent that posed a threat to the broader economy. I mean, do you have any thoughts on, on that at all? Yeah, I would say that those linkages, uh, which you very rightly point to, they they actually support the financial and political stability of the country, but they do undermine the efficiency and they handcuff any effort to sort of shift the economy toward consumption, which theoretically would be a, a positive thing for the Chinese economy. So, you know, China is is often lauded for, for you know, is often is often said to be immune to financial crisis and uh, you know a sort of bank heart failure the way we had in the West in in October of two thousand eight because of the government you know total control of all the financial levers. So you really do have to say that that supports stability, but it doesn't support efficiency. I think um, Martin Wolf put it in quite an interesting way a few years ago in the FT when he wrote a quite a pessimistic, actually uncharacteristically pessimistic article on the Chinese economy. And he asked the question whether the slowdown would be like a locomotive going downhill where it sort of gently, maybe not so gently, but anyway, glides to some sort of halt um, or much slower pace or whether it would be like a jumbo jet and it's just flying through the air and eventually the speed gets so low that it simply drops out of the sky. And it sounds like from what you're saying that you're more in the former than, than latter category. You're not expecting a, a sort of kind of Minsky moment in China. Yeah, I think that's correct. But um, there, there's a Chinese author whose name I always forget who wrote a short story about a train that's uh, that's 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 traveling through the night at high speed and the caboose is on fire. 
and the train is unable to slow down because the fire would reach the the cars in front and eventually consume the train. I think that that's that that's an apt metaphor for the Chinese economy. So you know everyone knew that the that the debt burden was excessive. Nobody knew how to stop it when Xi Jinping took over in 2012. He wanted to to uh, you know to to squelch the real estate explosion and the the speculative bubble, but you know as soon as as soon as the banks pulled in just a little bit, the economy started to tank, and so they did a hundred and eighty degree turn and they poured stimulus into the economy. That was in twenty twelve when he had a bit less power than he has now. Uh, the problem is that's that that's that's the only thing you can do: accelerate the train or let the fire consume you. Mm. And um, they're firefighting on a number of fronts at the moment, aren't they? I noticed there's just been another few billion poured into uh, efforts to try and stabilise part of the uh, property sector. So, and I guess it will be the same for local government and industry. So, at the very least, we we can expect lower growth from what you're saying. What about the prospect, or even lower growth? What what about the prospects for rebalancing towards consumer spending? Because that's what the China bulls have always been arguing, that this is inevitable and it will happen. And that's the next phase of development for China. Yeah, but that but but that ignores uh, all of the incentives and mechanisms that the Chinese economy uses to push itself forward. So, so you know, as as we discussed, the the investment capital required to push these these GDP targets gets bigger and bigger. This is why the I core basically has dropped yep. by by two thirds over the last 10, 10 years or so, a little more than ten years. Um, and you know that so so you need ever more capital in order to drive uh, top line growth in order to attract more capital from the outside by showing growth. So so now <laughs> there just isn't enough capital left in the world to do that. Um, anyway, the the point the point being, as you pour more investment capital into the economy, just as a matter of mathematics, the the consumption drops, right? because yeah. that's gdp investment consumption and government spending so so there there's just no there's never been a real interest in increasing consumption yeah so if so if we look at that situation what sort of i mean it's a again difficult question but what sort of medium term growth rate are we, are we looking at are we looking at a japan type scenario um are we looking at you know, maybe a, a short-term lift if they try and inject some stimulus, and there's a, a reopening of sorts. What, 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 what do you think? Well, you know, when people talk about the J- Japan-type scenario, they talk about um, you know low, low or negative growth for a decade going forward, and basically China falling off the map internationally. All that is true, but I would point to the fact that that uh, the the quality of life and the quality of Sort of investment. First of all, Japanese assets dropped a whole lot in value before that started to happen. Secondly, the quality of of life in Japan really was was and is much much higher than in China. I'm kind of haunted by something you said to me, JP, which is that in Russia, after the the breakup in in 1990, the social services provided by local governments fell apart in a matter of weeks. I mean, yes. it wasn't even it wasn't years and it wasn't months. It was weeks and it was terrible to watch. That kind of thing is actually starting to happen in China. So, 
you know, the fact that the banks are not going to have a, a heart attack is not particularly relevant to the the health of the economy and the social fabric in China. Well, if that's happening, maybe that relates to what we were talking about earlier with the COVID zero policy and sort of social social control. Um, in Russia, the whole thing was much more anarchic. I mean, I was in Russia in the mid 90s, early to mid 90s, um, and um, the situation was 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 increasingly uh, anarchic and then of course you have the 98 uh, crisis but anyway we're, i guess we're not talking about uh, russia um so uh, if yeah, we it's, um, it's a very interesting parallel and yeah. and i think you know keeping everybody at home you notice that the that the worst of the lockdowns that last uh, 3 months and and more are in the regions that are considered restive by the Chinese government. So I yeah. think there are five cities in in Xinjiang that have uh, lockdowns of more than a month. I mean, this is the <laughs> that yeah. clearly is not about COVID. I, I tell you the other thing actually about Russia that's interesting, Anne, which is that um, most of the uh, economic commentators stayed in Moscow and they looked at the data, the Goskomstat data, and they drew their conclusions from that. Whereas some of us actually spent a bit of time traveling around Russia and looking at factories. And, you know, it was I mean, it was very basic. The companies weren't getting paid, you know, and you could see um, there was this really obsolete capacity in Russia. The point being, that's not necessarily the situation in China, but it's from a bottom up perspective often that you can see things that are about to happen. And a lot of the purely top down commentators sort of sort of miss that. And that's one of the reasons I've been very interested in your work, because you do look at it by industry and draw conclusions from that as well as from the macro data as well. Yeah, I think that's spot on. And you saw, you, you perhaps uh, know how badly the US CIA got Russia wrong. Totally, totally. Uh, and absolutely. and that, was, that was because of looking at top-down data. Um, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a great movie called um, Mr. Jones about the visit of a, of a Welsh journalist to Russia during the Ukraine famine, which yes. was not reported internationally, <laughs> that that had a, obviously a tremendous impact on the Russian economy, but was never reported other than by him. Yes, yes, I've seen that. Now, absolutely, Anne. Again, if we sort of take a helicopter view, if you like, of what's happening in China and the impact of the rest of the world, do, do you have any thoughts on commodities? Because one of the big trades at the moment in the world, and I listen to a lot of podcasts with a lot of incredibly intelligent, very rich hedge fund managers. And the one thing they have in common is that they're universally uh, bullish on oil. Now, this may not apply so much with China because China is only, I believe, 13 percent of global oil consumption. Uh, but in terms of other commodities, um, such as industrial metals, I think the consensus out there is that we're in the middle of, of a sort of multi or, or a hiatus, I beg your pardon, in a multi-year bull, bull market. And one of the reasons why there is this hiatus is because people are concerned about a recession and a little bit on the margin about China. But do, do you think China could have a bigger impact on the commodity markets than people currently think? I do. And I think that, uh, that, that again, largely because of the property market, China is just not coming back. Oil is a little bit of a different issue because China does a lot of importing in order to process into, uh, into petrochemical products and then re-export. So it, it, it sort of supports their, their export numbers. But as for uh, mineral commodities like iron ore and, uh, and to a somewhat lesser extent, met coal, um, the, I just don't see, and copper, 
Um, I, I just don't see a positive future for these things. China has been sort of 40% of, uh, of incremental international demand over the last 20 years, and that simply is, is going away. So at some point, the green transition will take over as a driver. But obviously, with China being that bigger proportion, that could be pushed out by several years from what you're saying. Um, and the copper bulls could therefore spend quite a lot of time being intensely um, frustrated in the meantime. Yeah, I think that's correct. Yeah. So, um, if we then look at um, if we then look at the uh, currency policy, for, uh, obviously at the moment the the PBOC has been uh, defending the uh, renminbi, um, and there, there is a possibility at least that the dollar is is starting to uh, peak. I mean, this isn't a time to have a discussion on the. Fed pivot, and I suspect you probably don't have a view, and I certainly don't have a view on it. But at the very least, it seems more likely now there's going to be a recession in some point in 2023 in the US, and and the dollar presumably will will have peaked and will will start to go down against other currencies. Will, will this give the Chinese authorities, do you think, a bit of a breathing space? That, that's a good question. Um, I. I feel that it's been a very long time since the, the, the Chinese currency, which is soft pegged to the US dollar has been, and Chinese uh, financial policy has been moving more or less in tandem with the US financial policy. And that gave the Chinese a whole lot of breathing room. Now that they are in opposites and the Chinese uh, renminbi is declining, um, I'm not sure they can make it until <laughs> through through a U.S. recession yeah. because uh, the the U.S. recession, uh, which I, I agree with you on all of those ideas, but a U.S. recession would greatly impact Chinese exports and therefore Chinese export earnings. So when you have fewer sort of real incoming dollars, then you have to print more incoming dollars, or you have to print more dollars, uh, more more. Yeah, more dollars and more renminbi domestically, and that prompts inflation and prompts a depreciation of the currency, and then you start to get a bunch of capital flight, yeah. and when you get capital flight, they depreciate more. Yes, yes. It's sort of naively, I'm asking, is it, is it, is it harder now to export capital from China than it was because of the sort of general more authoritarian strain there, or is there still quite a lot of money leaving the country? It's definitely much harder to do, um, and uh, they, they've 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 been quite good at keeping a lid on individuals moving their money. Um, but you know, you ultimately money flows downhill, and it's a market, so yeah. people will find ways. Yeah, that is a, that is a huge difference, and has been a huge difference between China and and Russia in the nineties, because in Russia, money was simply pouring out of the country mainly by the sort of so-called oligarchs and their allies who actually played the 98 sort of um, deval. Um, if, if we yeah, were... exactly. And I think this is, uh, this is why uh, the key reason why Xi Jinping was so interested in cracking down on Anbang and HNA yeah. and the Tomorrow Group and, and Wanda and other such uh, private, private empires because they held too many dollars and, yeah. and he was very worried about the dollars flowing out. And we've seen a widespread repatriation of those assets, haven't we? Some quite distressed asset sales from Chinese groups. Yeah, there there has been for sure. Yeah. So, okay, so we've dealt with sort of commodity price inflation and the impact of China on that. What, what, what about manufactured goods? Because from what you've just been saying, it sounds as though China could still be a source of sort of disinflationary pressure to, to the rest of the, the world um, for, for a little while longer. 
Um, and then, of course, there's also the issue as well of the sort of US restrictions now on, on China, the sort of restrictions, particularly on the technology sector and the relocation of supply chains. Um, and any thoughts on those sort of two related issues? Yeah, that's a very interesting thing, whether because, you know, typically, as you know, in, in economies that are uh, more or less closed, like like China's, when you have uh, restrictions on, on uh, exports to China, then you start to get more fermentation around uh, developing new products and, and more innovation domestically. So and, and certainly there are lots and lots of startups in, in chip design and and so on and so forth, you know, the, the stuff that's been sanctioned by the U.S. The question is, is the state system going to allow these things into the production cycle? And, to, and over the past 20, 30 years, this has been a big problem. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a way for investors, do you think, to play some of this, um, if you like, import substitution in, in technology? Because obviously, you know, we've had I mean, I, I was writing about this for, for years. I know, I know you have as well. Is is the sort of governance-related issues that come through at a corporate level, which everybody ignores for years and years, and then suddenly they become very important. And by that time, it's almost um, too late. But notwithstanding that, um, when you look at Chinese companies, obviously you're looking for malfeasance and fraud. But do you, do you come across some instances of companies perhaps overlooked by the market where um, foreign investors could put money to work over the medium and long term? Yeah, I, I think that there's uh, probably a, a lot of value left in Chinese industrials that are mostly uh, listed within China on the Shanghai Exchange. Um, and, uh, you know, I still have have high hope for the uh, some of the Taiwanese consumer brands that are listed in Hong Kong that have very strong, you know, extensive marketing networks, strong brands and uh and play to a, a sort of low price, low cost Chinese clientele, um, you know, brands like Tingyi and Want Want. Um, but uh, we'll see. They, they, they have suffered from declining sales. Yeah. Um, and, and presumably from what you're saying, um, you, you don't think in it, because obviously we've seen a massive increase in the representation of China in the global emerging market index. I mean, that's obviously fallen recently, but that's because of the dismal performance of the Chinese market, even against the rest of EM. But from what you're saying, it doesn't sound as though you feel there's a really good reason to buy sort of China as a whole on a sort of more indexed basis. Yeah, I think that's correct. And I think that one needs to stay particularly away from the tech sector, which has been the, the engine of growth in, in the markets for so long. Yeah, even even despite the massive sharefalls that we've seen in the sort of Tencent and Alibaba's. Yeah, and it's a little bit surprising to me that the markets have reacted so strongly to uh, sort of willful uh, political changes, but I see no no possibility that those changes will will change. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And is there anything you want to add? Anything that we've sort of missed out there in terms of the sort of general um, outlook for China over over the medium term? I don't think so. I mean, if you have positive positive observations, I'd be interested to hear them. I, I feel that I get stuck in this kind of you know trench of negativity sometimes. Well, no, I'm, I'm exactly the same. I mean, the only the only thing is, I tend to be. I don't know about you. I tend to be an instinctive contrarian. And so when something falls, I mean, because the underperformance of China particularly, and that's whether you look even at the A share market now, which of course is still below 
well below its 2015 level. And MSCI China, even in total return terms, is well below, I think, its 2007, 2008 level. So, or beginning of 2008. So, and, you know, obviously, cosmetically, the multiples in China are very cheap. Um, And actually, we have had quite a few providers at IRF that I quite respect recommending Chinese equities but but that was before even before the latest falls that have taken place so other than on a contrarian basis I have to say I'm struggling yeah that, that's uh, that, that's my problem exactly because um, there's so many so many risks to these equities even though their values are, are so far down now um, that it's, but, but, you know, timing is everything. Yeah. So the question is, will there be another rally? I think not, but I could easily be wrong. Ha- certainly have been in the past. I think if I held it, I'd be reluctant to, uh, to sell now. Um, and as you say, maybe look for a, for a rally to, uh, to lighten up, especially if the markets do get sort of single-minded about the, uh, reopening trade, but otherwise, no, it does, it does look fairly, fairly difficult. Well, to close, maybe you could say a little bit, um, about the sort of service you offer. You, you've mentioned some of the products, but do you sort of consult on a, on a personal basis? I mean, do, do clients have access to, to you and your colleague? Sure, but uh, but but the key thing is our product, our, our weekly macro commentary, China Primary Insight. Anybody who an institution that pays uh, the subscription price for that certainly has as much access as they like to to me and the rest of our team. Good, because I think I think that I think that potential interaction with somebody with, with as I say, with so much experience in China and so much knowledge, because we've just obviously detected the tip of the iceberg here, would be very valuable. So to those of you out there who wish to have a trial for um, J Capital, um, then please get in touch with the IRF and we will arrange it for you. Um, Anne, I'd like to thank you very, very much indeed. That's been a really interesting um, conversation. I hope we can continue a dialogue in the future. Thank you, JP. I do as well. <laughs>